0: An announcement through email that this was the case Uh, and about an hour later I got a reply from a pastor who had just recently moved to Green Bay from the Milwaukee area. He had left the ministry, was now waiting for God's direction in his life about where to go next and lo and behold here he was landed right in Green Bay. So, you know, not only were we asking God to send a core group to us, but let's just open services, and he even sent us a pastor, (laughs) and then that result was, all he wanted to do was just get in the rotation, and I said, well, if you're living in Green Bay and you're in the rotation, let's just extrapolate that a little further and see what happens, and sure enough, that's how we were able to recruit a new man for that church, and he is preaching through the gospel of Mark. Uh, right now. And so we're excited about Good News Bible Church. And so you can be praying for them. Uh, We are praying for you as well. We're very excited about the prospects that you have here. Uh, We love uh, Pastor Ken and his family and just very excited for what God's got in the future for you. And so we continue to pray for God to bless your church and help you to prosper as well. Uh, Most of the time when I'm out uh, preaching in churches, it seems that my default, my go-to book because of being a church planter is uh, the book of Acts. Uh, So uh, you know, that's kind of like my wheelhouse kind of a message uh, to be able to go into that particular resource and and give something that would encourage churches. Uh, But today I'm going to do something different. I'm going to take us back to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah. So find chapter 40 if you would. Isaiah chapter 40 uh, is probably one of the top 10 chapters of Scripture in terms of its content and pivotal nature that you don't know about. <laughs> if, if, there was a, if you were to say what's your favorite chapter or what's the most well-known chapter of Scripture, Genesis 1 you know, obviously you have to go with that one as, as, a, as a huge uh, pivotal moment. Psalm 23, most people know the Shepherd psalm. Uh, John 3, and especially 316, and very well known. Romans 8, for those who are in the faith, is, a, is a, just a, I mean, you could preach a year on Romans 8. It's an amazing chapter. Uh, all kinds of places. Acts 2 is another pivotal moment. Uh, but Isaiah 40 is a very powerful passage. So let's see what we have here today. Uh, Isaiah is an incredible book. Uh, As a prophecy, it's long been considered among the highest in royal and majestic caliber when it comes to the message of this prophet. Uh, There are lots of reasons to like different prophets. You know, uh, Daniel is is most people's favorite prophet because of those amazing stories and the prophecies that he has, incredible stuff. Some people kind of default to Ezekiel because those visions, I mean, what amazing visions, uh, almost inscrutable visions about the holiness of God uh, that you see in Ezekiel. Isaiah stands out as a favorite for many because of his ability to capture in words the awesomeness and sheer gravity of God in all of his attributes. Um... It, you know, there was a generation I don't know if it's still this way or, or not but uh, there was a generation that would use the word awesome as just a way of saying, oh that's cool that's awesome, yeah totally awesome man, yeah right, righteous you know, all kinds of things like that right, <laughs> okay uh, 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 today when we're going to use the word awesome, we're going to go back to, to its core of, of understanding that you are struck with awe when you consider the person of God. And yeah, awesome works, but let's just kind of put it on steroids <laughs> because awesome in its genuineness is, is something that we are uh, uh, going to see as the person of God. We are awestruck when we read Isaiah about God, who he is, and how he is so utterly amazing, and glorious in his very essence, his very nature. Uh, Isaiah was called to be a prophet, and his calling is taught to us us in chapter 6. And he was called to proclaim this Lord who was high and lifted up. Remember that passage when he saw the Lord high and lifted up He was to proclaim that Lord to Israel. Israel, who was God's chosen people, but a people who, for reasons of sin and unfaithfulness, they had forgotten just how awesome their Lord God, Jehovah, really was. I mean, here's Israel. They're the covenant people of God. They had, by this time, in their sins, decided that they were no longer going to follow this God the God of their law, the God of their deliverance from Egypt, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead, they had fallen into the deviant ways of the Canaanites and had adopted that people's worship in the idolatry. They exchanged, if you will. They had this, but then they traded it in for this. They exchanged the matchless glory of, and majesty of God, this person who is the great I am, and here's what they traded it for, common, ordinary, idols of stone, wood, clay, metal, yada, yada. Israel, in effect, had departed from their scriptures so much that as a nation, they needed guys like Isaiah. They needed the prophets to call them back To the God who had created them, who had rescued them, who provided for them. Therefore, much of Isaiah's prophecy entails this setting forth of God in his matchlessness. And that's our key word today, matchlessness. And it would do so to cause Israel to realize the folly of pursuing other gods and return to the Lord God of Israel who indeed is the one and only true God. Scholars look at Isaiah and they usually view the book in two major portions. They consider the book in verses, or chapters 1 to 39 primarily focused on the theme of judgment from God for people living in sin. But then you come to chapter 40 and then to the rest of the book, which is into chapter 66, the primary thrust shifts from an emphasis on judgment to an emphasis on salvation or redemption, deliverance from judgment. It demonstrates then, if, if you're thinking about the book, that this matchless God of Israel, he will be merciful, he will be gracious, he will save sinners from judgment if they'll put their faith, their trust in him alone. And Isaiah communicates this message of salvation so much that the back portion of the prophecy, again, chapters 40 through 66, have been considered by many some of the most evangelistic of the Old Testament. Some of the greatest teachings to Israel about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, are found on the pages of Isaiah's prophecy. And to get the context for this, it was all recorded seven entire centuries before the appearance of Jesus the Messiah. Isaiah is consumed with the matchlessness of God. He wants Israel to place his hope, its hope in the one who would be born of a virgin... It would be called Emmanuel, that's out of 714 Isaiah. And as was read in our preparation for the Lord's table, who would be wounded for our transgression by whose stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53. And it's this theme of the matchlessness of God that I want to address this morning. In chapter 40, this is the chapter that provides the transition from judgment to salvation, to redemption. And this incredible awesome glorious god of the universe this god whose wrath against sin is going to result in judgment but here in this chapter he now offers a message of hope he wants his people to see him as the holy one of israel that he is a god above all gods god is a matchless god meaning he has no match there is nothing to be compared to him And when we realize that the message of Isaiah today is that we can actually know this God, that we can relate to this God, that we can love this God, it would prompt us then to turn from our sins, to seek him out for salvation, and wholly devote ourselves to follow him all the days of our lives. So with that in mind, today's message is entitled, The Matchlessness of God. Let's see if we can get that guy to work for us here. The on button is on and... <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll see if we can get the help for that. So the prophecy of chapter 40 is going to be divided into three sections and you can use your study guide if you need to. Uh, chapter 40 divided into three sections. Each of these sections will offer to us a different dimension to the matchlessness of God. And the first section that we're going to explore is in chapters, or chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. And it displays for us item number one, the comfort of the matchless God. The comfort of the matchless God. So to lead into these verses, for 39 chapters, the dominant message has been judgment. Judgment, judgment, coming because of sin. And if we think about that, messages of judgments are not going to be very comforting in nature because God's angry He's angry at the sins of the world because he created man to worship him, to worship him alone. And he's actually going to tell us here he's doubly angry with Israel because even though they should have been loyal to the God that saved them from Egypt's bondage and brought them into the promised land, they still turned away from him to follow after other gods. So he's doubly angry with Israel. So if if the reader has had any sensitivity, if you've come through 39 chapters of judgment so far... Uh, You're depressed, okay? You're you're despondent. You're desolate of heart. Uh, uh, Judgment sounding and the sense of hopelessness is going to prevail. And then you come to the opening words of the prophecy. Look what it says in verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Okay, judgment, 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 39 chapters. And now chapter 40, comfort ye my people. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. Cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Yes, it's true that the message of the prophet is focused on judgment, and yes, it's true that his people have displeased him, but not everything is lost. Rather, all is actually able to be found. There is comfort in the Lord, for the matchless God is not planning to stay apart from his people forever. A message of this first part of the prophecy, he's actually going to come and be with his people. So take note with me in the verses that follow. The comfort of his arrival, the comfort of his promise, and the comfort of his appearance. Look at verses 3 to 5. First of all, the comfort of his arrival. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Now, these verses open with a pretty familiar passage to us as Christians. They contain one of the prophetic predictions about John the Baptist being the forerunner to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, when this prophecy was first spoken by Isaiah, he's referring to a future voice, a voice that's going to stand up in the wilderness, call Israel to prepare themselves for the arrival of God in their midst. It says they were to make this straight highway for God. No curvy roads, no, just a straight shot in to its destination. Israel was to spiritually clear the way of any obstacles to prevent the impact of this matchless one coming into hearts and lives. Verse 4 is extremely poetic. It's grand. It describes how, if you can envision this, every valley, if you will, V-shape is to be spiritually raised to where it's flat. Every mountain is an inverted V is to be made low. So it's like, okay, I want smooth, Midwestern flatland prairie all the way through. I don't want any valleys to go through. There are no mountains to climb. Straight shot. To get ready for the way that the Lord is going to come when he arrives on the scene. And when he does, verse 5 says, His glory will be revealed and all flesh will see him arrive. Therefore, be comforted, sinners. The Lord, he's been standing as a judge apart from you, is going to come down from the heavens and be seen among you. Be comforted because the Lord arrives. Verses 6 through 8 the comfort of his promise. Great verses here. The voice said, cry, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever." So he speaks about this voice crying out about all flesh being as grass, being as flowers of the field. And basically, as grass withers in in a hot, dry sun, as flowers fade after the newness of their bloom has passed, that's the strength, that's the durability of sinful humanity. That too, he too withers and fades, and the result is just more discouragement and sadness. But the word of our God is not withering grass or a fading flower. It abides forever. And therefore, as Isaiah is setting forth the matchlessness of God, he's drawing attention here that there is nothing like the promises contained in God's word. He, man is to be comforted in his, God's promises, understanding that judgment is going to get swallowed up in deliverance through the ministry of God when he arrives in the midst of men. And then the comfort of his appearance. Verses 9 through 11. O Zion, that bring us good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bring us good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand. His arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. The comfort of his appearance. Verse 9 is like a coronal announcement. I, 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 Ruth, this illustration is for us in our generation as baby boomers. Remember the imperial butter commercial? Dun, 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 And a big crown, would happen on the head? Okay, yeah, I know, I, that's just for us. <laughs> I'm dating myself with my illustrations, I understand that. But that's what you have here. You have this coronal announcement. da 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 There's a trumpet. King is coming. Get to the high mountain. Jerusalem, let good tidings be lifted up with your voice. Behold your God. Here he is. He's coming. That's, in, that's good news. It's to be announced from the mountain's heights. Elevated voices. Be comforted that he is about to appear to you. Verse 10 says that he appears as a person with strength and authority. And when he comes, he's going to deal with people according to their just desert. Those to be punished will be. Those to be commended will be rewarded. And for those that are oppressed, that are stricken down, when he appears, God shall feed them like a shepherd. He'll gently take them to his bosom, care for their well-being and nurture. Whereas before Israel was under judgment and punishment, they're now going to find a strong yet gentle God that brings them comfort and hope. Now, the reason these verses are so encouraging is that they demonstrate God's matchlessness in that when judgment was deserved, God instead extends mercy. When mankind withers and fades, God's promises stay fresh and abide. When everything appears lost and hopeless, God is present now to bring comfort, security, and tender care. What's the message? Israel. What comfort is there in idols when this is the God that's coming to you? What hope is there in your human ability? What encouragement is there if you're left to yourself? Nothing matches the comfort of the Lord God. And therefore, if true comfort is desired, seek that comfort from him because he indeed is matchless. All right, let's keep going now. Let's move now to verses twelve to twenty-five. The prophecy in chapter four now, or chapter forty, continues this theme of matchlessness with the description of the matchless God. The description, verses twelve to twenty-five. Here, Isaiah is moving us deeper into the discussion of matchlessness by taking the reader from the encouragement and comfort that we just saw, but now we're going to see what's M- makes this God so matchless when he arrives in the presence of his people. And he's, in particular, Isaiah is going to feature four attributes of the matchless God, four distinguishing characteristics about his nature that will force us to our knees to worship him with awe and reverence. Verses 12 to 14, Isaiah describes how God, first of all, is matchless in wisdom. He's matchless in wisdom. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who hath meted out heaven with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or being his counselor hath taught him? With whom took he counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment, taught him knowledge, showed to him the way of understanding. you got a wonderful triplet of verses here, and there's this, there's this series of rhetorical questions about the wisdom of God. And if you were answering those questions as, you were, as I was reading through them, you would all have the same answer. Nobody, 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 nobody. No one but him. Verse 12 asks, who measured the water on the planet? It asks... Who took the yardstick to make sure that the sky was the right dimensions? That's pretty interesting. Who calculated the amount of dirt, soil, rock that makes up the, the land of the planet and then distributed all that weight so that it exists in mountains and hills? That's simply mind-boggling to think that our planet is like that. Isaiah is actually referring here to what science calls isostasy. Isostasy. Uh, it has to deal with the balance of the earth, meaning that there's equal weight to support landmass and mountains, valleys, and water, that everything about the planet itself is perfectly balanced. One of the things that's true about isostasy is that the water of the oceans, uh, when, the, when the tides come in and they're, they're hitting the shoreline that, in the way that they do, they exert a pressure that keeps the earth in balance that helps the mountains from falling over. Interesting. That's about all I know about isostasy. I mean, what it basically is saying, you know, every time the tectonic plates are kind of shifting and moving, that's just kind of the earth kind of making sure that things are kind of falling into place and staying balanced. That's what's happening. The, The earth is perfectly balanced that way. Weight distributed at different places all keeps the earth perfectly spinning and correct. So when Isaiah wrote the words in verse 12, he's asking the reader, who did all these things? Who was smart enough not only to accomplish them, but even to think about them, to plan it so that it would all work together to begin with? Try our matchless God. Verses 13 and 14 take it further by rhetorically asking who taught God how to be God? Who was God's coach? Who was God's mentor, his counselor, his professor? I mean, let's, let's imagine that. I mean, here's, here's the Lord Jehovah. He's in his classroom. And he's got his drafting board out in front of him. And he, he's sketching away on his, on his sheet. And, and the, the, the professor comes over and says, Hmm, Jehovah, that's an interesting thing you're drawing there. Let's see what you've got. Let's pull out, the, let's pull out the, the picture here. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, yes, I see this giraffe. Cute. Oh, it's very fun. Yes, lots of, okay, elephants. Nice, I get that. Oh wait a minute here. Let's, let's hold on. This is a strange thing. Um, you've got a furry creature here, so I'm. The, I think it's a mammal. Yes, it's a mammal. Um. Uh, but Jehovah, hey, uh, there's there's a there's a bill like a duck on this mammal. Yeah, yeah, it's a duck billed platypus. I know, but it's laying eggs. It's okay. It's how it works. It's, it's going to be in Australia. That's where all the weird, wicked stuff lives anyway. So it's going to be okay. Did that conversation ever happen? Absolutely not. Why? God has no professor. He has no instructor. He's God. Who advised him in creation? What source book did he refer to? Encyclopedia Britannica of Gods. No, none of that. None of that happened. None of these things took place because God is matchless in wisdom. He's matchless in authority. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. God is matchless in authority. When he speaks about the nations here, he completely minimizes their power and authority when compared to God. Verse 15, he describes the nations as the small dust of the scale or the balance. Picture, if you will, uh, someone living in that day going to the local marketplace to purchase grain. And they go to the marketer who's going to be distributing these things and you desire so much grain. And what he says, okay, for this much money, this amount of grain will be given to you. You hand him over the money. He pours out the grain on the scales to make sure that it's weighted correctly. He gets the balances to equal. He pushes off the grain into your sack that you're using and you give him money and you go home with your grain. What he has done is he has used his scales to be able to get that grain. You know what's left after that purchase? There's that little film of grain dust that's still on the scale that's there after you get done. You know what you do with that? You go like that, or you go like this. The nations are the small dust of the balance. That God just goes, and their authority is completely wiped out uh today's if we were using illustrations today when you open your laptop and you see that little filament that's kind of the nations are computer lint compared to god that's exactly what it is matchless in authority when compared to god the nations are no match for him verse 17 says the nations are nothing even less than nothing how are you less than nothing nations in authority, in terms of authority compared to God, they are in the negative. If you're less than nothing, you're minus whatever at that point. They're completely vain. Matchless in divinity, verses 18 to 20. So we've seen matchless in wisdom, matchless in authority, now matchless in divinity. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains he that so impoverished that he hath no oblation he chooses a tree that will not rot and he seeks unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved what is the image that you can fathom that is likened to god what does god look like what form can you manufacture in your mind that is an accurate representation of almighty god you can't do it, can you? No, it's impossible. But see, the workman, he's going to take his skills and he's going to create an idol. He's going to fashion something. The goldsmith's going to come along. He's going to plate it with finest gold. Even the guy who has no money, he just goes to a hardwood tree so that he can take out a cross section then and have an, uh, an idol fashioned that will not, ride away, not rot away. And, and, and which of those activities, which of those creations can come close to the found representation of God in his divinity? The answer is nothing. God is a God that's so utterly above all that we can imagine or think, he doesn't even possess a physical constitution to begin with. We're told in scripture, God is a spirit. We even said it earlier amongst ourselves that those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Anything that we can conjure up in our minds is utterly apart from God's state of existence. He is God, he's absolutely matchless. In divinity, One more attribute, 21 to 25. He's matchless in immensity. Matchless in immensity. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle or the globe or the sphere of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, that spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. That bringeth the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth as vanity. They shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, they shall, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them and they shall wither. And the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or shall I be equal? Saith the Holy One. Isaiah wants the reader to grasp, grasp it, if it's possible to grasp the bigness of God. Verse 21 tells us he's bigger than time. Verse 22 says he's bigger than the planet, spinning as this global sphere in space. Verses 23 and 4, he's he's bigger than all the systems of rule and law that operate in the world. He just blows on them to make them go away. And he comes to verse 25 and rhetorically asks, To whom, then, will you liken me, or shall I be equal? What person, what entity, what God of men, what, what can be set next to God for comparison? Measure out anything that you propose, it will be next to him as nothing at all. He has no match. He is a matchless God. Now, let's take this description here and combine the first point of his comfort and put those two ideas together, we now connect that even though God is so utterly holy, utterly separate from anything that we can comprehend, we are comforted that that's the God that is coming into this plant, coming to this world, He's coming to us. And he has made us promises in his word. He's going to abide present in and with his people. Boy, I'll tell you, that that makes God so much more than the big man upstairs. He's not like the old bumper sticker, he's not our co-pilot. And I get the motive behind it, but that's not accurate. He's not our co-pilot. He's not some magic charm like some of the health and wealth stuff that's out there. This magic charm that we whip out like an amulet against all the the forces of bad and of circumstances, the difficulties of life, as if he's here to serve our need. No, we're blessed to just be spared a deserved judgment upon our sins. He is almighty God caring and shepherding us in the midst of our trials. Uh, Like the psalmist said, a very present help in time of trouble. We're granted the privilege of actually being loved by this matchless God and then being given the privilege of serving him. That is something about which we can stand in true awe of who he is. And if that wasn't enough, this chapter, the, the crowning verses that we've all probably got hanging on our walls somewhere in our homes are yet to come. We've got great things to wrap up this chapter. Our third and final point is number three, the relatability of the matchless God, the relatability of the matchless God. Isaiah now is going get to get across to us the fact that this matchless God whom we serve, he's not disconnected from us he's not dissociated or untouchable yeah he's going to be so powerful that he created all things and yes he's so immense that he can't be measured or quantified but he still possesses and manifests love for his people god despite these matchless things that are true about him still relates intimately with us and for us as his people so on this note let's take a, a, a note of verse 26 first of all And we see this principle, though he created in the past, his power is visible today. Though he created in the past, his power is visible today. As he's moving into the conclusion of the prophecy, he's emphasizing that the creator of the universe has specifically ordered everything to function perfectly together, fully in accord with his intention and design. Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and behold, who hath created these things? that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. So as he's moving to this this conclusion, when the verse says not one of these fails, he's referring to the fact that every star, every system within the creation, everything that's happening around uh, the earth and, and, and the universe itself, It all works and keeps working. God is the one who designed it all. He even did so naming every single part of it. And yet, even though he displayed the power of creation in that first week of the Genesis, God's power remains visible for us all to recognize and see if we will simply obey the verse. What is the charge of the verse? Lift up your eyes and behold. Look at these things. See them for yourself. Look up, lift up your eyes to see it. This matchless God indeed is coming, and when he does, his awesome power is going to be on magnificent display, and it will be done on behalf of his people. Here's a great application for us to share for ourselves or with others. Do you ever doubt God? Do you ever wonder where he is? He's not absent. Lift up your eyes. Notice that you can see the power of God in the creation. God has not remained aloof from the happenings of our lives. Even in the midst of what appears to be a severe tragedy, God is here. And we can be confident that the same power that was displayed in the creation is also available to us, to minister to us. Because of his power for creation, it's visible today. We then can know that it will meet the needs that we have in our own lives. And furthermore... Verses twenty-seven uh, and beyond. Though he is immense beyond all, th- 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 there we go. Though he's immense beyond all things, his power is personal. Though he's immense beyond all things, his power is personal. Um, there, those are pretty lofty words. Though he's immense beyond all things, it's kind of if you don't kind of define that, uh, it, it looks a little uh, a little lofty, but maybe kind of elusive. Uh, picture it this way. He is unlimited. He has no bounds to who he is. God is unlimited. Verse, let's skip 27. We'll come back to that in a moment. Look down at verse 28. We, he, what ways are, is God unlimited? Have you not known? Have you not heard that the everlasting God, there's the one uh, indication that he is unlimited by time. He's, he is everlasting. He has no expiration date. Uh, God as creator, he is not bound by physical limitations. It says that the, that the everlasting God, the Lord, is the creator of the ends of the earth. If he's the creator of the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth means that the earth has, has boundaries. If he's the creator of them, he exceeds those. So there are no physical limitations to God. It also says that this creator, he fainteth not, neither is weary. If he does not faint, he never gets weary. He's not limited by power or energy. He doesn't hit his end and then have to quit. And notice as well, there is no searching of his understanding. He is not, he is not limited by knowledge. There isn't an end to all that God knows. He possesses infinite knowledge. He is unlimited in every possible way. That's why he's matchless. So, But that being true... In spite of all that immensity, in spite of all that infinity, if you will, God still is very concerned about and available to each and every one of us. Now we go back to verse 27. Note, he is personally aware. He is personally aware. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? He doesn't see me. He doesn't know my situation. He's left me. He's ignoring me. And Isaiah says, no matter how troublesome life might be for you, you have not escaped his attention. God is personally aware of your every circumstance. As we know from other scriptures, he knows your situation better than you know it yourself. And Israel is lamenting that their way is hit from God, that it doesn't appear to see us anymore. And, and Isaiah says rhetorically, why do you say such things? Our matchless God is personally aware of everything that's going on in your lives. And so much, is this, so much is this true that we come now to the final words of the prophecy, which again are the crowning verses of the whole chapter. He teaches us that God gives us personal strength. He gives us personal strength. Verse 28. Uh, Well, Actually, I read that. Verse 29. He giveth power to the faint and to them that have no might he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You know, this God is the source of all power, all strength. He has an endless supply of the thing. He gives that power to his people when they faint, when they have no might left in themselves. We look at the youths that we know with their seemingly boundless supply of energy. I imagine any given day at the Chip Chase house, it is a room full of energy. Uh, when we, we, uh, earlier this week, we had, uh, we had the whole cousin crew at our place, that's six kids, six and under. And let me tell you, there was just a whole lot of energy that was going on there. And a couple, couple family pictures, if I may. This is my son-in-law, Lucas. Uh, my daughter is Caitlin, and uh, he's holding Ian on the left and Wesley on the right. Uh, they are both four years old. This picture, they were both three years old, and they were taking a little journey up to Turkey Run. Uh, to go do some uh, hiking on some of the trails, and they don't choose the the lower rated trails. They choose the highest, most difficult ones, and because Lucas knows how to dad, he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna break them or make them successful. That's kind of how he works. <laughs> And they had a blast. There were, there were a lot of things that they were doing with these throughout the day. And uh, this is a few of the pictures that they were. And so they were walking through the rivers. You can kind of see them. I mean, that's a, that's a high ladder that they've got to climb up all the side the rock. And both boys just shimmy right up that thing. They don't care. They're just climbing trails. They love this stuff. But then my favorite shot is the one at the end. <laughs> 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 they were totally wiped out. When they got done with that, on the way home, they were totally, they were just completely toast. Why? Because the youths faint. It's what it says here. The youths shall faint and be weary. You know, the young men shall utterly fall. Uh, I remember my boys, high school, going out for sports. I mean, they just go, 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 go. They get back home, and I'm telling you, they walk up the stairs, and you never hear a peep out of them. They just... Like they fall over on the bed, they just crash. Even the young men shall utterly fall. Um, okay, if that's true for the youths and the young men with their athletics and achievements, and that we, and even they come to a breaking point, what does that say about us, <laughs> guys like Henry who get weary or are aging, um, our feebleness? continues to make itself more evident with every passing day, or if we're downtrodden by our circumstances, or maybe you're one of those that checks the all of above option in those things. What does that say for us? Well, we don't have a big prospect of hope in that case, but that's when Isaiah actually ministers to us with the classic verse of the passage. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength shall mount up with wings as eagles, shall run and not be weary, to walk and not faint. Our our matchless God, he's not concerned about our age. He's not concerned about our abilities. You know what he's looking for? He's looking for in those that need a gift of his strength. He's looking for their faith. He's looking for their patient trust in him. We already know he's coming and that comforts us. That was the first part of the chapter. And we know that when he comforts us, the one, the person that is going to come, he's been described amply with all those superlatives of his attributes. This matchless God is worthy of our faith. He's worthy of our trust. He will deliver. He will rescue. He will redeem. He will give strength because he's personally concerned for every one of us. And the power that he promises to give to you that you need in your lives is going to cause you to soar like an eagle. Yes, it's poetic, uh, but you're able to run and, and not grow tired in this race of life that we have. And wherever it is that he has your pathway going in your walk before him, in his will and plan, the energy to arrive is going to be in sufficient supply. That's what he's saying to us. And so... Like Isaiah, we ask, who indeed is a God like our God? He has no match. Who indeed deserves our worship, our loyalty, our service, our lives, our faith, more than him? There is no God like the Lord. He is the great I am. He is awesome, all-powerful beyond our furthest abilities for comprehension. And yet this one is the only true God. He is relatable and he cares about every single one of us. Therefore, can we ever even entertain the thought of turning away from him, of exchanging, like Israel did, that God for an idol? Can we even dwell on the ways that would take us out of, our fe- out of fellowship and favor with him? Isaiah wants us to answer that challenge with all this spiritual evidence that it presents to us. It's the challenge of having learned these realities. Can we do anything else but fall down and worship and glorify him first by turning away from our sins and receiving the gift of eternal life by placing faith in his son, the matchless God that came, You see, again, Isaiah was speaking these things 700 years before Jesus Christ, the Messiah that was going to appear. And when the Son of God did come, most of Israel actually rejected the one that they should have been looking for, that Isaiah 40 told was going to arrive. They fell short of the challenge that this prophecy presents, so let us not be as them. Instead, Let's wait upon the Lord by putting faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, and then make sure that we are numbered among those that follow after Him all the days of our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, You are indeed a matchless God. In just three simple ways. Your prophet Isaiah in this chapter reminded us that there's comfort in that reality. As he described you, your matchlessness is just made that much more evident to us.